0: Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn to glorify and honor Him. The lesson you're about to hear is the second in a two-part series covering that runaway bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. Many questions have been asked, many claims were made, but what is it all really about? I hope you already listened to the first lesson, The Da Vinci Code, Seeking the Truth About Dan Brown's Evidence. If not, let me encourage you to find that lesson first. You can go to www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. That lesson lays the foundation showing that the evidence just really is not there in support of its claims. In this lesson, we're going to ask the question, if the evidence wasn't the reason this book was written, what was? What is the truth behind the fiction? Open your Bibles. And let's find out what God has to say about it. After examining Dan Brown's evidence, was anybody else left wondering why on earth anyone would make such shocking and startling claims as he did with so little backing and so little evidence to support it? Really, I'm just almost amazed. And I'm really almost amazed that it's having as much influence, as weak as it is, And yet, I think there is some truth behind the fiction. There are some truths out there that have led to the fiction, and these are truths about Dan Brown's life. Dan Brown has said that the writing of this book was part of his spiritual quest. And like any book and any author, when somebody writes a book, they always put a little bit of themselves in there, and I believe that... By looking at the book and some of the contents, we can find out what it was, in fact, that produced this book. And that's what I want us to do tonight. What are the things behind the book? What really led to the Da Vinci Code? In order for us to do that, we're not only going to be looking at some of the quotes that were found in the Da Vinci Code, we're also going to be looking at some things that Dan Brown himself has said, and also the Robert Langdon book that he wrote prior to that, Angels and Demons looking at some of the things that he has said here, which I think are going to lead us to understand why this book was written and how we should feel about it and what the Bible says about this sort of thing. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious Father in heaven, you are awesome and powerful, and we are amazed at you. There is no God like you. You are above all. And Father, we are in awe. Your mercy, your grace, your benevolence, your creative power, your sovereignty, your judgment. We are amazed by all that you are. And Father, we're thankful that you sent your Son to die for us. God in the flesh, Deity, who lived among us, who died for us and was resurrected, whose tomb is empty. And because of that, we have hope of resurrection, and we're so thankful. Father, we pray that You would lift us up and make us strong in the face of our adversaries as those who would attack us and call into question Your grace and Your favor and Your law. We pray that You would strengthen us to be able to stand strong and to draw people into Your family so that they also might be forgiven by Your Son's blood. Father, we love You and through Him we pray. Amen. There are three truths in the life of Dan Brown that I believe led to this fiction. Three struggles that we might call it. And I think it's important for us to take a look at this because these are struggles that we have at times and struggles that the people that we talk to are going to have. The very first struggle is that Dan Brown fumbles with faith. In a recent, or not a recent, back, actually back in 2004, as he addressed the New Hampshire Writers Project, Dan Brown said, I really wish I had the luxury of absolute unquestioning faith. I do not, and I am still searching. Dan Brown says, I really wish that I had absolute, unquestioning faith. Well, don't we all? Isn't that something all of us want? Faith, because it is faith, is here because there is a possibility of doubt. And all of us deal with that, and so does Dan Brown. But I'd like for you to consider some of the things that Brown has said, both in the speech and also in his books. And I don't have these on the slide. I just want you to listen to what is said. In the Da Vinci Code, the main character, Langdon, smiled. Sophie, every faith in the world is based on fabrications. That is the definition of faith. Did you catch that? It's the definition of faith to be a fabrication. That is the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. Every religion describes God through metaphor, allegory, and exaggeration, from the early Egyptians through modern Sunday school. Metaphors are a way to help our minds process the unprocessable. The problems arise when we begin to believe literally in our metaphors. Those who truly understand their faiths, understand the stories, are metaphorical. In the book Angels and Demons, when the same character is asked whether or not he believes in God, the following is stated, A spiritual conundrum, Langdon thought. That's what my friends call me. Although he studied religion for years, Langdon was not a religious man. He respected the power of faith, the benevolence of churches, the strength religion gave so many people, and yet for him, the intellectual suspension of disbelief that was imperative if one were truly going to believe had always proved too big an obstacle for his academic mind. I want to believe, he heard himself say. Victoria's reply came, carried no judgment or challenge. So why don't you? Well, it's not that easy. Having faith requires leaps of faith, cerebral acceptance of miracles, immaculate conceptions, and divine interventions. In the same book, Angels and Demons, a scientist says, Mr. Langdon, all questions were once spiritual. Since the beginning of time, spirituality and religion have been called on to fill in the gaps that science did not understand. The rising and setting of the sun was once attributed to Helios and a flaming chariot. Earthquakes and tidal waves were the wrath of Poseidon. Science has now proven those gods to be false gods. Mr. Langdon makes a classic mistake regarding faith that so many people make, and sometimes even Christians make this faith. He assumes that faith means believing in something without any evidence. In fact, it seems that he believes that faith is believing in something in contradiction to the evidence. But that's not what faith is, at least not as it is biblically defined. Both have the idea that faith is just what we have to fill in the gaps where we can't find out something through knowledge and through science. If we don't have facts, we make something up, we fabricate something and drop it into the gaps until we can figure out the truth. And of course, the problem is is that when we find the truth and then we still hang on to our fabrications, that's faith according to Robert Langdon, according to Dan Brown as he writes these books. But that's not faith according to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 defines faith as the Bible uses it. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, the Hebrew writer said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It does not say that faith is believing in something that you did not have evidence for. It says that faith is believing something that you didn't actually see. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the contrast made there? We walk by faith, not by sight. Did you notice that it didn't say, we walk by faith, not by evidence? It says we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is accepting something that you didn't necessarily see, that you didn't see. Some folks have a blind faith. They didn't see it and they believe it without evidence. But faith, our faith, is supported by evidence. We take a look at the characters in Dan Brown's book. Sir Lee Teaving, Robert Langdon, Sophie Niveau. They all believe that there is a set of documents. They believe that Mary Magdalene's bones are somewhere there and that there is an organization that is protecting them. But they haven't seen those bones and they haven't seen those documents. What do they have? Faith. Evolutionists today will claim to us that the world and the universe came into existence because of a huge bang that happened eons ago and that through a series of fortunate accidents, we as human beings have come upon the face of the earth. But they didn't see it happen. They didn't see man come onto the earth. They believe it. What's that called? Faith. They have faith. But we looked at the evidence that was presented by Dan Brown this morning, and in my mind, it was severely lacking. They didn't have any evidence upon which to base their faith. I've seen the evidence that the evolutionists present to us, and it seems to me that their evidence is also surprisingly lacking. And so I don't have those faiths. But having seen the evidence for Jesus Christ, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I have faith in God. I have faith... In His Spirit. What evidence do we have? Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 points out our faith, our evidence for faith. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. You remember at the closing of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John chapter 20 Verses 30 and 31 that the Apostle John wrote, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. What these passages point out is that we have the Word, which, excuse me, which presents evidence in favor of God, in favor of the Spirit, in favor of Jesus Christ. And we recognize that this is not just any Word but this is the testimony of those who have in fact experienced the work of God, of those who saw Jesus as in a court trial where we see the testimony of eyewitnesses. We have their testimony recorded in Holy Scripture for us. You remember what John wrote, the apostle, the same one who wrote that text there in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. In First John chapter 1 and verse 1, John told us about himself and about his relationship with Jesus. In First 1 John 1.1 1, 1, he said, "...what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life." John was there. He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus before and after the resurrection. We have the testimony. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter talks about his own experience with Jesus Christ. He says in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And Peter, of course, talking about that time on the mount. As he continued on, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter was there. He saw it. He heard it. And he has recorded what he has learned from the Father for us. Again, this is not just anything. This is not anybody out there writing. These are people who experience the work of God that are providing their testimony just as if we were in court. And the folks who actually saw whatever is being on trial provide their testimony. We have the evidence. Consider the evidence of Paul's life. The skeptics may try to twist what happened, but we cannot deny that something happened on the road to Damascus nearly 2,000 years ago that turned the most vicious of enemies into the most ardent of followers. What explains that? Not to mention the evidence of the disciples' devotion throughout their lives. Again, the historians may twist it, they may distort it, but something happened that Passover week nearly 2,000 years ago that took 12 men and turned them into the greatest witnesses, counting Matthias. Turned them into the greatest witnesses who were willing to die for their faith in a message that challenged their culture. And whatever they did while they were going around was so amazing that it brought other people into the faith and made them willing to die because of the message that challenged their culture. What would make people do that? What would cause them to be so willing to believe that somebody was resurrected from the dead that they would die defending that? Despite what the skeptics tell us, we have astounding evidence. The Bible is the most well-documented and reliable document from ancient history. Whenever archaeology and history have revealed anything that is mentioned in the Bible, it has always proven the Bible to be true. The Bible, written by more than 30 authors over over a period of more than 1,500 years, is amazingly unified and historically accurate. It's powerful. It presents its characters in absolute honesty, warts and all, revealing things that if we were just making it up, we wouldn't put in there. No doubt, there's the evidence that even now, 1,900 years after the canon was closed, Revelation ceased. how accurately it defines life and how amazingly it addresses the opposition. Even now, nearly 2,000 years later, We can't overlook that. And then no doubt there's the evidence of prophecy that we find in Scripture. As Old Testament prophets that we know absolutely had to prophesy at least 200 years before the first century, we know absolutely without fear of contradiction, period, that they had to at least prophesy these things more than 200 years prior to Jesus coming to the earth, and yet they prophesied things that would happen in the first century A.D. in the words of Sir Lee Teabing, A bit too perfect for coincidence, wouldn't you say? The evidence is astounding. There are many people who fumble with faith. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we haven't actually seen the face of God, does not mean we should discard it. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. I don't know why faith is such a premium for God. But Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember this. If there were no room for any doubts, then it wouldn't be faith. But God has given us the evidence upon which we can rest our faith. And we can believe that God is, that His Son came into the world, and that His Spirit revealed this Word. And we can be saved by that faith. The second struggle, the second truth in Mr. Brown's life that has produced this novel is the concept that we can take different routes to the same goal. Though Brown claims to be Christian, that seems to be about where his faith stops. His his spiritual quest has left him bereft of any real faith and any real path to God. In fact, he has become what you might call the greatest of ecumenicals that claims that every path that says it's going to God, is equally valid and can get you there. Listen to what he said as he addressed the New Hampshire Writers Project in 2004. You can also find a similar quote to this on his website in the Frequently Asked Questions section. He said, Faith is a continuum. We all fall on that line wherever we may fall, and by attempting to classify and rigidly classify ethereal concepts like faith, we end up debating the semantics to the point where we entirely miss the obvious. What is the obvious, Mr. Brown? That is that we are all trying to decipher life's big mysteries. Where did we come from? What happens when we die? Where are we going? What does all of this mean? And each of us must follow our own path to enlightenment. In the same speech he said, I don't claim to know where we all came from, but I do know that there are multiple versions of that story and I also know that that's okay. Everyone is entitled to believe what they believe. If you find someone's ideas absurd or offensive, just listen to someone else. In the Da Vinci Code, one of the characters says, the Bible represents a fundamental guidepost for millions of people on the planet in much the same way the Quran, Torah, and Pali Canon offer guidance to people of other religions. If you and I could dig up documentation that contradicted the holy stories of Islamic belief, Judaic belief, Buddhist belief, pagan belief, should we do that? Should we wave a flag and tell the Buddhists that we have proof that Buddha did not come from a lotus blossom or that Jesus was not born of a literal virgin birth? In Angels and Demons, when one character says that the day science substantiates God in the lab is the day people stop needing faith, the supporting protagonist in the book, Vittoria Vetra, responds, You mean the day they stop needing the church? But the church is not the only enlightened soul on the planet. We all seek God in different ways. What are you afraid of? That God will show Himself somewhere other than inside these walls? That people will find Him in their own lives and leave your antiquated rituals behind? Religions evolve. Do you see the point? One path to God is as good as another. They are all equally good valid, we're told. We're all taking the same route to enlightenment, to God. But we're all taking different ways. Can that be true? Is it possibly true that Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, paganism, Christianity are just different paths to coming in contact with the same God, can they all be right at the same time? Absolutely not. While there might be some tenets that are similar in any of those religions, There's no way that these mutually exclusive and contradictory religions can all be true. The reality is, as we take a look at the myriad of faiths and religions that are in the world, we are forced to make a choice. And we had better choose wisely. Joshua understood this in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he said, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Jehovah, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua understood. You're not serving the same God when you serve those gods of the Amorites or those gods of the Egyptians. Those are different gods. We have to make a choice. The psalmist understood this. Psalm 86. In Psalm 86 and verse 8. The psalmist understood that there was no one like our God. He said in Psalm 86 and verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like your hands. Excuse me, like yours. Psalm 89, also verse 8. Psalm 89 and verse 8: 8, O Lord God of hosts, O Jehovah God of hosts, who is like You, O mighty Jehovah? Your faithfulness also surrounds You. Psalm 113 and verse 5. Psalm 113 and verse 5, Who is like Jehovah our God who is enthroned on high? There is no one like Jehovah. There are no other gods that are like Jehovah our God. And there is no other path that can get us to that God if it's following after other gods. While Dan Brown certainly seems to equate the Roman Catholic Church with Christianity, and there's no doubt that the antagonist in that first book, Angels and Demons, believes that there's only one route to God and it's through the Roman Catholic organization. Bible-believing Christians do not see it that way and do not believe that. We do, however, recognize that there is only one path to God. Only one. Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 6. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, Verses 10 through 12. When Peter and John were questioned about the miracle that they had performed in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, Peter said, Acts 4 and verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you. The builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no way to salvation, there is no way to God except through Jesus Christ. And yes, we understand from Acts chapter 2 and verse 48, as we enter Jesus Christ and He brings us to the Father, that the Father adds us to His church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 excuse me, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number or the Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. Is it true that you can walk your own path to enlightenment? Well, it is true in a sense that you can walk your own path. God will not make you walk His path and will not make you do that either. But there's only one path to enlightenment. And that's the path through Jesus Christ. And there is no other. What do we fear? Do we fear that folks might meet God someplace other than within these walls? Absolutely not. Do we fear that folks might find God in some other way than that that's prescribed here in the Scripture? Absolutely not. I'll tell you what we fear. We fear that folks will be seeking God in the wrong places and not find it. We fear that there will be those who have sought for God and believe they have found Him, but have fallen short because they have not found Him according to His path. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I fear that there are going to be people like this who believe they found God on their own path to enlightenment. And yet they stand before God in judgment and He says, depart from me because you didn't follow my law. That's why when error like this comes out, we have to confront it. That's why we strive to persuade people to believe in Jesus and to believe His Word. Because that is the only way you can find God. The only way. And let me say that it really should not be too shocking or surprising to us that someone who claims is a Christian believes that any path to God is valid. When we take a look at all the competing and mutually exclusive churches that claim Christianity, that teach their own doctrines, that mold Jesus to what they want Him to be, and then they say things like we're all going to the same place we're just taking different routes, why would it be surprising if eventually one of them says that we can take a route without Jesus? There's only one way, and that's the way that's prescribed in God's Word. There is no other. Think about it. If all of these routes are equally valid, then they must all be equally false, because they can't all be right. It just doesn't work. The third truth or struggle in Mr. Brown's life that has produced this is what I call the conduct code. Catch. He's caught on a conduct code. And this, I believe, is the real draw for the book. This is the real thing that's made this so wildly successful in our society because folks don't like to be told what to do. And what these books tell us is that nobody is allowed to tell us what to do. Not even God In Angels and Demons, after Langdon complained about the leaps of faith that we read about moments ago, he went on and said, remember he was answering the question, why doesn't he believe? And he talked about the leaps of faith. And then he said, and then there are the codes of conduct. The Bible, the Quran, Buddhist Scripture, they all carry similar requirements and similar penalties. They claim that if I don't live by a specific code, I will go to hell. I can't imagine a God who would rule that way. In the Da Vinci Code, one of the characters says, the Sangreal documents simply tell the other side of the Christ story. In the end, which side of the story you believe becomes a matter of faith and personal exploration. But at least the information has survived. It's a matter of personal exploration. Sophie looks skeptical. She says, My friends who are devout Christians definitely believe that Christ literally walked on water, literally turned water into wine, and was born of a literal virgin birth. My point exactly, Langdon said. Religious allegory has become a part of the fabric of reality, and living in that reality helps millions of people cope and be better people. Sophie responds, But it appears their reality is false. Langdon chuckled. No more false than that of a mathematical cryptographer who believes in the imaginary number I because it helps her break codes. This is the bane of our postmodern society. That is that everything is subjective, everything is relative. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. What helps you doesn't necessarily help me and vice versa. My codes don't have to be your codes of conduct. We all get to do what we want, I believe. Then we boil it all down if we were able to look into the hearts of those who reject religion and into the hearts of those who have embraced this idea of this ecumenicalism that everybody's okay, it would boil down to this idea. I get to do what I want to do and nobody is allowed to say anything about it. You want to know why we have a Da Vinci Code today? because that's what people want to believe. I get to do what I want to do, and nobody gets to say anything about it. I make my codes. You think in the Da Vinci Code, if you've read it, that the God is actually Mother Earth, or that the God is the sacred feminine? Absolutely not. The God is me. Because it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I say. All that really matters is how does it make me feel about myself. That's all that matters. It can be false. It can be proven false. But as long as it helps me feel better, that's what it's all about. And nobody gets to contradict it. But does that make any sense? Are we really supposed to believe God is there and that God brought all of this that we see into existence, but that same God who created this world, according to universal physical laws, has absolutely no concern or care about how we behave in His creation? Interestingly enough, through Langdon Brown has said that I just can't imagine a God who would establish a code of conduct and then punish people who violate it. But I have to tell you that I can hardly imagine a God who would do otherwise. Think about this for a moment. If somebody started a company, what's the very first thing they would do? Would they not establish guidelines and bylaws and charters to govern that company and figure out punishments for folks who violate it? If somebody established a nation, when nations are established, what's the very first thing we do? Do they not establish laws that will govern that nation and figure out punishments for those who violate it? Why on earth, then, would it challenge our creative minds to believe that there is a God who has created this world and then established laws and plans to punish those who violate them. How challenging is that? In reality, how can it be any other way? We all know what Genesis 1-1 says. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And by the mere nature of that creative action, God was established as judge over His creation. He made it. He gets to say how it works. And because I believe in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, I am not surprised when I read Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Because I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I am not surprised when Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, that same God says, the conclusion, when all has been heard is... Fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person; for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, because I believe God created the world, I believe that God gets to judge the world. We need to remember second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God created the world. He brought His plan to pass in Jesus Christ and He gave us this Word to tell us how we ought to obey within this world. He has that right. He is the Creator. And despite the fact that by God's nature of being God the Creator, that that in and of itself means that God is also God the Judge. There are folks, even Christians, that are backing off of that. That want to have the idea that it really doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how the church works. It doesn't matter how Christians live. It doesn't matter. And so we're not surprised when there are folks who claim that it doesn't matter if you even go through Jesus Christ. We need to remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. The Ecclesiastes writer said, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. What was Solomon telling us here? God is God, and we're not. And when we come to God, we have to come His way. Follow His code. James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We often apply this to our interpersonal relationships, but really it's about our relationship with God. James tells us how we should act. This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. When we come before God, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Our job is to do what God says, because it's not enough just to say that God is God. It's not enough just to say that He's our God, as Matthew 7:21 through 23 pointed out. We have to actually do what He says. And God has that right because He is our Creator. With such lack of evidence, and if you weren't here this morning and you were hoping to get some issue regarding the evidence and all the things that are said against the Bible and all that, we talked about the evidence this morning and how pathetic it was. The evidence is not what caused this book to be written. This right here is what caused this book to be written. fumbling with faith, wanting to believe that we can make it to the same goal while following different routes, and being caught on the conduct code. And it all comes down to, I want to be my own God. Before we close... I'd like to address one other issue brought up in both of Brown's books, both of his Robert Langdon books. In Angels and Demons, a girl in Mr. Langdon's class glares. So, is anything original in Christianity? Very little in any organized faith is truly original. Religions are not born from scratch. They grow from one another. Modern religion is a collage, an assimilated historical record of man's quest to understand the divine. That was written in Angels and Demons. I believe Mr. Brown gained a little more confidence in his assertion in the Da Vinci Code. Teething groaned. Don't get a symbologist started on Christian icons. Nothing in Christianity is original. Is that true? I'll tell you what. If there's nothing else that is original, I know there is at least one thing that is original. There is not one single religion in the history of man except those that hearken back to Christianity who believe that God's Son came into the world, lived and died the sacrifice for our sins and resurrected to give us a hope of resurrection. To be sure, there are pagan religions that believe in gods that died and were resurrected, but not one single one of them views that as the salvation of mankind because of a sacrifice offered in order to pay for this conduct code that we didn't follow. This is the only one. That believes the Savior came into the world to be the sacrifice for us. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. It's the only religion in all of history that offers that. There is no other. There's nothing else original. That is. And what an amazing concept for men to just make up. That distinct from every other religion they'd ever seen, God would provide the sacrifice for us. How powerful that is. If you've read the Da Vinci Code and you are intrigued by it and you want to seek the sacred feminine, then search hard. And maybe one day you will be able to bow at the bones of Mary Magdalene. But those who want to seek Christ won't ever bow at His bones because His tomb is empty. Nobody has held on to his sarcophagus and hidden it and kept it secret for 2,000 years because it is not there. And if you desire to seek after the dusty, decayed relics of someone who is long dead and powerless, then you're allowed to do that. But here we serve a risen Savior. And we'd like to invite you to serve him too. I hope this lesson was beneficial to you. I hope it helped you understand what's going on in our culture and what caused the success of this book, The Da Vinci Code. Let's remember what we learned here. We must not fumble with faith, we must not believe that we can get to the same goal by following different routes. And we must not get caught on the conduct codes. Rather, let's remember to seek the truth, and the truth will set us free. Let's remember that we serve a risen Savior. We're not seeking the dusty relics of one who has died and is powerless. If you have questions about the Da Vinci Code, about the code that God has established within His Word, about Jesus and His resurrection, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody is giving you this lesson on CD or on audio tape. If that's the case, may I please encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned. Again, it's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there, both in audio and outline format, that you're free to use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.